The Boldly Now Show, burning desire, big ideas, bold action. Hi, this is Michael Sean Conaway with Boldly Now. I have the great pleasure of introducing my friend Allison Tate. Allison is the Director of Economic and Social Policy at the International Trade Union Confederation. Uh, she represents 207 million uh, workers around the world in 165 countries. Uh, I think of Allison as the uh, uh, economist to the people and the planet. And uh, she's going to help us kind of understand a little bit about this time uh, and a little bit about what we don't know about uh, economic theory and uh, the, the sense of value exchange on the planet. I think we're gonna, you're going to find this conversation really interesting and enlightening. I know I will. Allison, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Um, now, Allison, you're in Belgium, uh, in Brussels, you said. Uh, yes. And um, uh, you said today was the first day that they're, that they're letting people out. Now, in, in, in the United States and a lot of other countries have had the ability to go out and exercise. You know, Tell us about that in, in Brussels and what's your day been like today? Well, it's beautiful and sunny here, which I think is the big unrecorded thing about COVID-19 because it's been sunny since lockdown started nine weeks ago. But I've been very busy working because what we've seen is the enormous impact on working people and the global economy. So I haven't been out in the sun so much. And today for me was the first time to do that with my husband and some friends where we've, we can create bubbles. So you can have groups of couples, actually a couple friend with their two children and me and my husband. So we can be a bubble and we can now socialize together, um, go cycling together like today, but still maintain 1.5 meter distance. So um, whilst we've been able to go out for the last weeks to the park, to the end of the street, we can't um, go in cars, we can't go by public transport, obviously, and so going further afield has not been possible. But you know, my colleagues, some of whom work in Norway, which has been shut down, really, the country's been closed. Um, in Barcelona, one of my colleagues has only been allowed to go out in the last week for a particular hour. They stage it for people with different ages, age groups. Our friends in Italy have only been allowed to go 200 meters down the street. Uh, and so taking the rubbish bin out has been a highlight in recent weeks for people who've literally not been able to go outside of their apartment buildings. And obviously people with elderly people or children in their families, then that's been um, extra challenging. And, uh, but what I found really interesting in Belgium, which is quite a small country compared to many others of its neighbors in Europe, um, people have been very respectful of the rules. And so literally no one had to say, please stay two meters apart when you're in the line waiting to go into the supermarket. People only go out, you know, really for essential items like to the pharmacy or to, to collect food and bring it back home. And so it's really changed people's lives a lot. Belgium's a very social place and, uh, cafes and um, pubs and wine bars. And that sounds very, very nice lifestyle. In fact, it is for most people, or for many people, but that level of social interaction has totally changed. And it's starting to open up a little bit now. As of tomorrow, 
non-essential work will start again and some people will, who can't work from home or can't telework will be going back to work for the first time in nine weeks. So it feels like we're on the cusp of a new change, a new phase of dealing with COVID-19. But you know, one of the things I think I'm really conscious of, it's, it's like the biggest expression of international and intergenerational solidarity I've seen in my life. And I say that because here we are in the middle of Europe, but it's also very conscious that in the countries that were impacted so with such devastation, with such large numbers of deaths and such huge impacts on people's lives, their family lives, their working lives, how we manage our lives. Um, it's really been a staged process. And I'm from Australia and I hear family and friends and colleagues in Australia speaking in very different ways as to how COVID-19 has impacted them. But here in Europe and looking to other places uh, that don't have the privilege of a public health system that works, a public transport system that works. Um, you know, everyone has access to running water and soap and those sorts of things that we need. And can um, we've got a, a social security system that really came into impact very soon when it was obvious that small businesses were being impacted hugely. And uh, so people have been able to access supplementary wage support for small businesses, meaning that many businesses did not lay off workers like in many other countries. And so the level of, let's call it formal work, has been able to be maintained. And for workers and people in the trade union movement, in the labor movement around the world, we really know and we've noticed that the countries that have been able to do that have meant that the social and the health impacts have been less extreme but we can see in countries where COVID-19 is still yet to really hit the populations so severely, both in terms of health and the economic impact, um, it will mean loss of life because people don't have access to food before people are dying of COVID-19. So the statistics in countries across Africa and Southeast Asia and some of Latin America we're looking at probably 250 million people dying of hunger before they die of COVID-19. Mm -hmm. And this is such, obviously, a huge human impact, but one that will just impact people's lives, not just for weeks of closure, but for months and years and maybe decades. And so for us, the whole of society and the whole of the way the global economy works is being questioned right now. And that's, um, that's one of the outcomes of the reason that COVID-19 has been such a huge wake-up moment for people all around the world. And these, these workers you're talking about, these are people, I mean, these, in these locations, these are people that we've set up our factories to make our fast fashion, yeah. our, our, you know, like, are the things that we consume in uh, the Western countries so greatly. Uh, and yeah. so these workers have had livelihood because of this, you know, economic activity in their country. But yeah. then, so tell me what's happening, like, are they still yeah. working? Are they not working? Are they, what's happening to them in the middle of this? Because we know that, like, we know that, you know, like, clothing retailers and things are, are going out of business or declaring bankruptcy. We just heard here in America a couple of things. Yeah. Um, so what's happening? Well, to obviously, when people stop buying in countries where consumer products, uh, obviously, the there's two different worlds. You, I would describe the essential supply chains, so food, medical supplies. Um, pharmaceuticals, 
you know, gloves, masks, ventilators, medical support, and then what we would call non-essential supply chains. And as you mentioned, clothes is a really good example of that. Many other things too, many other products that we need in a daily life, but maybe are not essential to the level that we've been consuming them. So clothes is a great example. So I've been involved with a number of companies and trade unions, labor unions across the world at a global level and in the countries that have been most impacted. Like, for example, Bangladesh. So Bangladesh is a country that the largest number of um, formal jobs, 4 million jobs, mostly women, uh, people who've come from rural areas to the cities to work in factories. Uh, and seven years ago, Bangladesh became quite famous because there was a huge building that collapsed and um, more than a thousand workers lost their lives. And many big brands of uh, the clothes that we wear in Europe or in the United States, Japan, Australia, and many other places are made in countries like Bangladesh, but they're made under conditions that um, very often consumers don't think about. And they're, those workers are earning really what's a minimum wage. In fact, in some of those countries, it's not even a minimum wage. It's not even what is minimally required to live a life, <clears throat> to pay for the food you need, for your rent, for your medicines, for your transport, for your family, for your kids to go to school. And so what became really obvious in a country like Bangladesh, not all 4 million workers lost their jobs immediately, but many workers with the shutdown were told to go home. And that meant back to their villages. So um, many factories did shut down, although some continued and some still continue and some are starting up again now. But in the weeks since the shutdown happened in mid-March, literally millions, hundreds of millions of people went home mm -hmm. and back to their villages where they've never earned an income to have any savings. And they're back to villages where they're the main income earner for them and their whole families and sometimes extended families. So then what happened in the case of Bangladesh, for example, um, the wage component of their, of the factories, the, the suppliers, the factories that supply the goods, they call the suppliers the manufacturers, they said, um, because they could contact people by mobile phone, but they've never had mobile banking. Those, those women have never had their own bank accounts. So they literally collect their wages on a monthly basis in an envelope in their hand. So they'd gone home and then the factory owner said, well, the wages for March are here now, but we don't know about the wages for April or May or June or beyond that because so many orders have been cut and many of the factories relied on uh, massive contracts from obviously the countries that where the clothes are sold, not locally. And um, so what came out of that was that some of those women then had to literally walk, walk 100 kilometers back to their factory sites because public transport had ended in the lockdown conditions. And they walked to go collect that money for their wages. And then they went back to their villages. So we've been working with many of the brands and the unions and some of the campaigners, civil society organizations who've really been trying to say, this is a moment now, this system is clearly just not working. It's clearly just failed so many people. We've got to ensure that countries like Bangladesh have some level of 
social protection, a floor that means that people are not going to be starving. Because if you don't have your salary today, you don't have food tomorrow, and your families are going hungry from then on. So very often when the mainstream media or social media talks about the impact of COVID-19, it's talking about people who either have some savings or have the capacity somehow to support themselves or their families. And in many, many countries around the world, and I would say many people in the United States too, from what I read and hear, and um, just don't have that backup. They don't have that social protection. Yeah. And um, so I live in a country here in Belgium where you know, that's really valued by people. And um, companies contribute to that, governments contribute to that, and workers from our own deferred wages contribute to that, for our own pensions, our own health insurance. And that's just not the case for many, many people around the world. And this is becoming glaringly obvious that it's not just a health crisis, but it's the intersection of a crisis of inequality, a crisis around gender rights, it's a crisis of climate and sustainability. And the planet, for many of us, we've been clear, has been facing a huge crisis for a long time. And now all these crises are intersecting in this moment. Yeah, all together. And, you know, I, I, I want to just reflect, you know, we're, when we're talking about these workers or the people that don't have these, uh, uh, any kind of social safety net or, or you know, food security, we're, we're talking about billions of people. We um, are. You know, yeah. I've heard two to three billion. You know, we're, we're eight billion and so you, you're like, okay, there's eight, but there's three that are actually below that level. And I think it's, um, I think it's kind of shocking. You know, yes, we do have poverty in the U.S. and, and other industrialized countries, you know, like, like severe poverty where, where, you know, people are going hungry. But, but, you know, the United States is 300 million people. Three billion, yeah. that's 10 times more people than the entire population of the United States, our yeah. biggest cities. Uh, are are below that level, so just subsistence living, um, and then there's a lot of there's a lot of people who like to talk about well, there's fewer people living on one dollar a day than there was you know 50 years ago. Great, we've made progress towards uh, very very slow progress towards uh, a moment of of actually not having anybody below that line. And, and one of the things that that was we look at the future and we look to the future, and especially at the GFI, who uh, is a uh, supporter and sponsor of Boldly Now. You know, one of the declarations we made is that we can actually design a system that doesn't design for 3 billion people in poverty. We can actually design a system that designs for every, like the no poverty. And I, I think yeah. it's maybe a, it's a, it's a modern thing in a way. I mean, so, you know, going back to Adam Smith, 250 years ago, conceiving of a world that could take care of every single person was just a little bit out of, the, it was out of the realm of possibility. We didn't have supply chains like we didn't have technology. And so, you know, at that level, and many of our, I think many of our economic policies are based upon thinking it's 250 years old or, you know, evolutionarily from that, but kind of rooted in that. Um, you know, so my, my interpretation is that, well, we have a system that was designed for poverty. It's actually at its building blocks was designed to have that kind of poverty and not because it, the people, you know, the thinkers back then didn't have a heart or didn't, you know, want people to, to thrive on the planet. It's just that they couldn't, they didn't see a possibility of a system that's, that's different. Um, well, it's a little bit like, you know, how people saw the planet back then as well, right? Because the economic system was designed around this concept that we had a pie and you had to divide up the pie. Mm. Well, you know, you know, at your own dining table with your family, how that would work, right? And there, it really brings a sense of limit or like, well, 
where's the rest of the pie and where's the next pie coming from? Well, you know, we've clearly reached the planetary boundaries also of, of production and pollution and carbon pollution, certainly, uh, already. And so the carbon budget, if you like, of what we need to be engaging with around how we use not just fossil fuels, but how we use things that are finite. And most natural resources are finite. And even clean water, you know, um, it's really become obvious that the solution for COVID-19 is not just staying at home, but it's actually washing your hands with water and soap. And a lot of the people that you, you just referenced there are people who live in places where they don't have running water. How is it that in this century, that, you know, we can send men and women to the moon and we can't provide drinking water and clean water for the majority of the people on the planet, for the majority of the people? let alone food, let alone food supplies, let alone safe food, let alone jobs. And so it's really obvious to me that this is a moment not just to wake up and not just to notice what we've been kind of tolerating and existing in a system for such a long time, but we've actually now got an opportunity to say, if this is not working, what could we invent as the smart human beings we are right now what could we innovate to actually make it possible that not only people are not hungry, but that jobs are created that meet our needs? And that may be our creative needs. Certainly it means our financial needs, but also our social protection needs and the needs for not just me as an individual or us as a community, but actually for a whole population on the planet. And, you know, I think we're going to be facing some much more confronting times around COVID-19 that's not handled right now. You know, we're at the beginning of May and many countries are expecting a second wave of the virus, many communities, and it won't be the way the first one went, you know, oh, it started in China. Oh, and then Italy was a problem. And then, oh my goodness, you know, a lot of people died in Spain and you know, many government leaders have been saying, well, we've had time now to prepare, not to prepare for the virus because the virus is doing what it's doing, but to prepare our healthcare system right. and to prepare the way we work and to prepare how our food supply chains actually operate. And a lot of those things are going to be way, way closer and way, way tighter, if you like. So I honestly don't know if, if in two years' time we'll be buying so many clothes made from poor women in Bangladesh. It's my dream that women in Bangladesh have other options that provide them with a dignity of life that's not exploitative for very long hours in, you know, with toxic chemicals in factories making clothes for people who have a lot of clothes already in their <laughs> wardrobes. Uh, but so what does it mean for local communities, for local economies, for local families and businesses what could we create that would be really meeting our needs and providing dignity in the level of incomes for people and ensuring that people's health, health and safety in their work. And, you know, it, it's, it's obvious when you think about the conditions that women living in poverty and working long hours in a garment factory in Bangladesh are facing, but you know, what? there are so many other unhealthy workplaces like we hear in your country in the United States, where huge numbers of people working in the meat processing plants 
are getting sick from COVID-19, or that the largest number of bus drivers were in New York and in London that, that died as a result of not having personal protective equipment, masks, to protect them from exposure. There's so many jobs that are really challenging to think about how we're going to manage those working relationships and that space to be two meters apart for the foreseeable future. Right. So there's a lot of creative thinking going on and a lot of innovation, not just about microchips, but you know, like it's not all about technology solving problems or waiting for technology to solve those problems. I think it really is about us using our creative thinking as policymakers, as economists, as artists, as musicians, you know, for, for people to really think through how, how is life going to be really different? And the next generation, you know, they won't be relying on the things we've relied on for now. And a lot of that's already blown out of the water. But in coming months and years, you know, we're going to have to be way more creative. And I suggest we have the opportunity to be really looking at both local economies and a global economy that's really much more resilient, that can bounce back from big shocks. We're going to get more and more other shocks whether they're health ones or from extreme climate events, but to have a more resilient local and global economy, a more sustainable economy and a much fairer one. Yeah, interesting. And I'm no I'm economist, but I, as you were talking, you, know, you think, okay, there's this group of people that don't have access to clean water, uh, that you know, maybe their living conditions or their housing's not adequate. Uh, they don't have much public transport or the ability to get around or safe public transport. Uh, you know, like there's, there's all of these things. And then we have them, what they're working on is, is X for export. Yeah. And you, know, you can just say, well, what would make a big difference? Well, wow, we could put them to work building, you know, water purification plants and, and, you know, putting in infrastructure to, to get water to houses and rebuilding houses. And you could see that same human labor, yeah. not being used to um, you know, drive a, a whole economic cycle from that starts with them and ends up with a consumer having a garment and, and the, the company who's you know, running that business making money. So uh, you know, I, sometimes I say that our, our, our economics right now is, is we turn human resources and, and planetary resources into capital. Like it, that's what that is. We turn, we turn these resources into money. And then the money that we know right now is just being collected in larger and larger pools by fewer and fewer people, which, you know, like that's something humanity might want to just tackle as a notion that maybe that's not what we want to do with turning our human resources and planetary resources and into piles of cash for people. We'll leave that one alone for right now. But just if you start to thinking about the human labor, like the, the activity of the, the people, the, the, their, their hearts and their minds and their bodies working, if they were working in their local economies to improve their local lives, it would probably be a very short period of time with yeah. probably much less capital than we would spend on anything in the, the, the developed world. They could provide themselves with, with a, a great life if their lives could be turned towards uh, improving their own environment and their own uh, communities. Um, so I'm not an economist, but it just seems like to me, like if we put these people to work to do the things to make, like we don't have to come do it. Like and it's not like we have to provide clean water. They can, they can do the work to provide clean water, maybe some resources. Absolutely. Well, you know, money was a human invention too, right? Yeah. Money wasn't kind of growing on trees and humans went, oh, that's a helpful thing. Great, right? So we invented that as a mechanism for exchange of value. And then the value became on like these, all these amazing things that 
wasn't necessarily needed for human survival or human needs on a daily basis. So, you know, I think a lot of people during COVID-19 have realized there's a lot of things they don't need on a daily or weekly basis. And there's some things they might like or they might want, but they don't need them. And so what does that mean in terms of the way we use our, all our own labor, our mental labor, our physical labor, our, our, you know, the resources. If you think about what resources means, like it's a resource. And there's a very different notion of like the common use of resources to just a few people holding all that and keeping it, you know, under their beds or in their bank accounts. That's a very different world to the one that actually economists in the earlier days thought about when they started thinking about how we share resources, mm. how we distribute resources. And, you know, cash and money and foreign currency exchange, etc., was a really great invention for looking at doing that. Now we have this other way of we can talk to each other. We can exchange a whole bunch of things. Um, without having to actually have a physical mechanism to do that. And so that's why, you know, the whole notion of blockchain and a range of other ideas have come about for looking at how we actually exchange value. I don't have to give you one egg and you give me one tomato any longer, right? So the point, though, about how we value those resources and how we value clean water. Yeah. You know, there's many, many multinational companies that get criticized because they somehow get to have the monopoly control of access to the water in a particular community. And, um, you know, it gets bottled in plastic and sent to the other side of the world. And literally those people in that community don't have clean running water. Right. That's actually insanity, right? right? That just does not add up for anyone. Ask, ask two children playing in the sandpit. They will go, that doesn't sound right. right? You don't have to be an economist to figure that one out. Right. So I think that this moment in history, in human history, is a real moment to be thinking boldly, to be right. thinking differently about how our economies do work and how they could work and how not just value is shared or exchanged or generated, but what is productive, what is, you know, of social value, what brings value to society not just profits to a company that then gets distributed in certain ways that most people even really don't understand. Right. You know, how a stock exchange works, how investments are made, on what basis, most people really don't understand. And it's kind of complicated and economists know that, you know, we have this special language to try and describe this. But the reality is, how is it that certain things become more valuable when in these moments, you know, I see on our streets here in Belgium, every night at 8 p.m., we go out on the balconies or out on the footpaths and wave and clap and cheer to our neighbours in acknowledgement of the essential workers, mm -hmm. healthcare workers, supermarket workers, you know, doctors and nurses, of course, yeah. but people who are delivering our food, etc. And it's really interesting that very often it's those people who have not been paid wages beyond a very low minimum. So the people who are now called the sanitation workers, the people who clean our hospitals, clean our schools, clean our buses, manage the waste disposal or recycling, the garbage men, the, you know, et cetera, are the people who've traditionally been paid way less than many others. And that's partly because those workers haven't had 
power or being seen to be valued in the society. And now it's like, wow, society really values those workers. Well, it's, it's much better to pay them decent salaries, give them paid sick leave, time off when they're ill or they need to care for others like their elderly family or people who are disabled in their families or children who need them at home because they can't go to school. It's actually way more sensible to pay them decent conditions and respect their working conditions than just clap. Now, clapping is important because it is really a practical and a community acknowledgement. But there's way more we need to do now to actually really look at what kind of balance we want in society and how we do that in cities and rural areas in different industries and really across the planet because this has become really obvious that we're connected we're so connected and we are never going to actually handle these huge global problems like a health pandemic or climate change or the reality of the way in which our economies work, if we're not going to do that, understanding that we're all connected. Yeah, great. And uh, um, so I wanted to mention, you know, we, we talk a lot at, at Boldly now about being hyper-local in our decision-making in terms of like, you know, local communities, local com uh, uh, economies making decisions for themselves, like how should that run for them? But we also talk about how there's an, a need for a larger global governance of those things. And you were sharing with me something that's going on in the EU right now around protecting uh, workers' rights. Can you share a little bit about this? Because this seems like at that level, that kind of, like that 10,000 foot level, a yeah. really important moment uh, to understand that actually governments can uh, uh, start to do things that, that maybe were, um, I wouldn't say impossible before, but unexpected before. Tell us a little bit about what's going on for workers' rights yeah. in the EU. So, I was sharing with you before about what mandatory due diligence means. Very technical term, mostly only lawyers understand it or human rights lawyers. But it's actually saying that companies have a, a requirement to look at what the impact of their business is. And it's actually being brought about in law in the EU, in the European Union. And so it's not there yet, but by 2021, there's this process going on because these things take time. But it's actually acknowledging that whatever size company you are, from, you know, like a small family business and the 7-Eleven store on the corner, through all the supply chain interconnections, that, because we are a part of an ecosystem, right. up to the big companies that are the, the big brands that I was referring to before when we were talking about the clothing industry and how that operates on a global level, Actually, business, whether you're making goods or services or you're investing, and this is really important. It's also about how money is invested, how capital is invested, has a due diligence responsibility. There should be a planning process to assess the risk for those investors or for those companies about their own operations and through the supply chain. And we've all known that for a very long time, but it's never been put in a regulatory context. And it's never been a global conversation before. It's happened in different places, in different companies, in different supply chains, and in different countries. But now it's being spoken about that the European Union will do that. And that really means that all the places where Europe buys and sells from as well, so it's actually global. Yeah. And so it will actually come about in different legal jurisdictions, in different countries, countries' legal systems, but it will actually recognize that a company's impact can either be positive or negative, and it can make a negative impact on human rights, yeah. on labor rights, 
if not paying a minimum wage is actually undermining the labor rights of those workers that you earn your profit from. Right. But it's also about environmental standards and a whole range of other things that need to have a due diligence process to actually look at what are the risks of this company and how are we going to deal with it? And it's not saying you're a bad company or, you know, you shouldn't be doing X, Y, or Z. It's actually looking at what you're actually doing right. and how that really works and how are we going to solve this problem? And it's what's also very interesting is not only does it look at human rights as a foundation that's really human, like universal for everybody, no matter what country you live in or what company you work for or what workplace you have, but the other element is it's going from saying that the primary responsibility of a company for profit making is to the shareholder. Right. That's never been the case, actually, until the 1980s. Right. So that's kind of short history, actually, in human history, if we look at it longer term. Right. So what that means now is that rather than saying all profits go to shareholders and however that's distributed is decided by the decision makers, the you know, the um, head people in the finance department or the members of the board or, you know, how that, who are the shareholders? It's not only about that. It's actually about stakeholders, stakeholders in an economy, stakeholders in the company. And those stakeholders might be those workers in Bangladesh that I was referring to and the people who live in their communities. Because if, you know, genes are being... Um, made with toxins and those toxins go into the water and those people don't have clean water because of the effluent from those factories or it might be your community but i'm giving the example of bangladesh that still the company that buys those goods or actually contracts for those services has a responsibility as well as those local businesses and local communities so it's actually connecting us like we see through COVID-19 in a really real way around both the labor laws, the environmental laws, and the regulations around competition and profit making that um, will also be a very, very different world in the future than the one we have this week or last week. Right, so, so before this time, if I had a, a clothing company and I bought some product from you know, a place in Indonesia, um, I could just not ask them if their factory was in employing child labor, for example, or just not ask them it, what the, like, they could just say, everything's good over there, right? And they'd be like, yeah, yeah everything's good over here. I'm like, okay, make our clothes. So now you're yeah. saying that I actually have to know what's going on in that factory. I have a, I have a- Well, I have you a, have to have a responsibility to know, <laughs> and there will be a reporting process in yeah. which you have to say back to not only your, your own shareholders, but to governments and actually to a bigger sense, a bigger group of stakeholders than the ones that just say, has our share gone up or down this month or these last three months? So yeah, that's exactly what's gonna happen. It's not any longer okay to say, oh, we didn't know that. We didn't ask those questions. We didn't hear about it. No one ever told la, us. La, 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 yeah. <laughs> or even, even the companies that you know do their social auditing and ask those companies, companies this is okay yeah and they go oh yeah it's all fine you know that's not actually a sufficient answer any longer right right and and i think we've seen some some you know maybe well-intending companies get caught out by that uh you know like we can't i mean you can't really tell what's going on in the cult country culture but you know when a company gets caught with some really bad working conditions or really bad situation it goes public 
Well, at least in the public view, I mean, at least they're, they're, you know, I think chagrined by that. And it's a, it's a really difficult thing for them to deal with. And so it's like they got their foot on the gas, but they're, they're, you know, they're not really looking at the impacts of, of the business. Now they're saying you have to. And if it's, an, if it's an even level playing field, right? If that's true for all companies, then I think that, that fits right. And even just the, the basic capitalist notion, it's like, oh, it's com com equal competition, right? We get to compete in the marketplace. We've got two clothing brands. You know, like I, I, if we're all expected to you know, behave in a certain way, around workers' rights or maybe, uh, you know, uh, um, environmental uh, issues and rights, then we, then we just have better, I mean, we just have better capitalism. It's just better for everybody. Um, and so I think, like, we, we're always a little bit, I think, in this era saying, oh, well, governments can't do things or they, they're incapable. This sounds like something that's really positive coming out of the EU. Well, it's really clear that in most countries around the world, that idea that governments can't do things or they're too slow or they don't care has been blown out of the water too. Yeah. Because, you know, people are looking and saying it doesn't work if we don't have coordination on this between cities and states and federal governments, between countries that live closely together and those borders, you know, on the lines on the map don't make a lot of sense because they, they get their essential food from across this border. And, you know, yeah. so I think it's, it's really changing what people could imagine for the future. Whether it changes that in policy terms or fast enough, we are yet to see. But I think for sure, the reality of saying, it's not okay just to pretend it doesn't happen or that we never asked. And it's not like saying people have been bad about that in the past. That just hasn't been their intention, right? It hasn't been their focus. It's like, we need those clothes from here to here. And you know we need them on the, the shelves. People are buying green jeans today and you know last week they wanted brown jeans and we need more green jeans you know like it's like really right so but and i use those two colors very importantly because you know there's often this thing of brown assets right like how do we invest in these brown assets like the assets that are polluting and you know or the green assets like the good assets but actually you know it's not about the color it's actually about the real impact and it is really about investing I think where we've come in 2020, which I was not expecting in 2019, I got to say that people are thinking about investing in human beings and investing in human rights mm. is a real conversation now. Mm. Whereas before it was like, that just sounds like more cost to me. That's a cost to business. And rather than seeing workers and our skills and our talents across the world as being a cost to business, it's actually the foundation of any business. Right. And I think for people who've been working in the creative arts, everyone's known that, right? But even people in the creative arts are often not paid duly for the value that they bring. And so, you know, this is a real opportunity when you think about connecting people from different cultures and different industries and really looking at what is important and what is necessary for a decent life and a quality of life and a dignity of life, then we can draw on so much more than saying, oh, it's like poor people in this context, just somehow they're not as valued for some reason. We don't quite understand it. That was a part of the design of the system. Right. And now we, we can't just say, oh, it kind of just fell out of the sky and that's what we have to deal with. No, we have a real opportunity now, a real moment in time, a moment in a generation to right. actually look at how are we going to protect the things that we really value and how are we going to ensure that 
people are not fearful about how to manage their lives and how to how to raise their families and support people in their own communities and just take that pie for me you know it's like the chocolate bar really like i just want that for me because i can't see how we can make that work in any other way well that's just a lack of imagination i think that's right yeah <laughs> great and imagination is what we're going to be uh, uh, engaging in together, Allison, uh, over the next few years with Boldly Now and the Degenerative Future Initiative. Um, you know, like we, the thing that we're coming together is to see, like, like okay, this is, a, this is an issue of imagination, designing a new system, figuring out how to make these work, then, then we should be able to handle a, an imagination issue. Imagination is not something like a chocolate bar that you run out of. We don't have to we don't have to parse out the amount of imagination. We've got 8 billion imaginers on this planet. We're hardly even using, I would say we're using one-tenth of one percent of our imagination potential and capacity. I'm not yeah. an economist, but maybe you can figure out actually how, how little we are using. But if we could use even 10% of our capacity to imagine a new world and a new future, um, yeah. then we would, I think we just have an abundance of ideas at least to try out. Like, Can we get, can we get ourselves from we don't have any ideas how to redesign the system. Like we've got hundreds of ideas we're experimenting with. We're yeah. trying. Um, if our generation can do that, and I mean that as a collective intergenerational moment here, uh, people yeah. from the age of you know 12 to 80, if we can do that, by the way, if you're below 12 and you want to make an impact, that's fine too. <laughs> we yeah. Ready for you. Below 12 have great imaginations <laughs> too, right? That's right. They, they, we, we, we actually celebrate imagination below 12. <laughs> yeah. So it just kind of gets weeded out of the system. Right. Anyway, it's our firm belief that using imagination and then putting those ideas that we imagine into action uh, can have us be in a very different place in 20, 50, and, and 100 years. And I really want to just, I want to thank you, first of all, for the work you've been doing, because most of us just haven't known that there's economists that are doing the things you're doing. I mean, you're, you know, you're, a, to me, you're an essential worker that's not been celebrated as well. Um, and, and now, though, in this moment, if we're actually considering redesign, then those people who have the knowledge and expertise and skills that you have that are willing to put it to work for the embetterment of all on the planet, uh, you know, you're, you're one of our most essential resources. And uh, I'm excited to see us get, get to play in that domain and actually get to, yeah, um, I don't know what's gonna come from it, but I know that we have the, an opportunity now that's unprecedented. So. Um, yeah, well, thank you. And you know, I would just add that I think that doesn't depend on which economics degree you have or which university you went to or what country you were born in. But that imagination, you know, people, some of the smartest economists I've met are women in markets in developing countries going, so if we did it like this, we could maybe do it like that. And it's like, that's brilliant. Like, you know, really. So it's not about um, having a, a particular background or education. It's about using our imaginations for being purposeful and for being productive. And uh, I look forward to where humanity can take us out of this very dark time right now. And, um, and let's find ways to actually use the visions and the dreams and the thinking of some of those younger children. And maybe it was our, us as children as well that we might have gave, gave up on thinking that that was possible. Well, let's see what's possible for the future. Great. Thank you, Allison. Uh, look forward to our next conversation and look forward to hearing uh, what things you're working on in the next three and six months. Uh, thank you for joining us on Boldly Now. It's my great pleasure. Thank you. The Boldly Now Show, igniting the world of burning desire, 
big ideas, and bold action. Be sure to download Boldly You in the App Store, Google Play, or online at bold.ly forward slash Y-O-U. Boldly You is an app and learning platform igniting your burning desire, big ideas, and bold action, generating a future for a thriving humanity.